So much traffic. Yeah, Ma'am, so yeah, it was a lot. We just saw Thor in your car, Charlie. What's that? We saw Thor in your truck. Oh, yes, he's he is. Did you call it in? Go ahead. You're, we're starting here. Is it? It's not yeah. Mem. Oh. It can mean water, chaos, mighty. It can also mean blood. Oh, how I love your law. I meditated on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from evil from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. It is, that, that's it saying it's running, so. Um, okay, good, we got that and we got this and let's see, I got a couple prayer requests here. Um, Let's see. Okay. Shannon's daughter and her Jewish boyfriend are getting engaged. They went out there to join them, and uh, she says they both need Jesus. And so she's asking for prayers for her daughter, Ron and Shannon's daughter, and her fiancé. And then the Jesus crew has big needs for his Uganda ministry. There's terrible flooding there. Uh, if you want to help with that, if you can help them monetarily, they definitely need it. Um, I can give you their email, I can send the video link that uh, has that information on there, uh, but that's a, the Jesus Crew who surprisingly Don uh, mentioned them on Sunday morning and now they've got this big problem at their Uganda ministry. So uh, we want to keep them in prayer as well. Then uh, Chris Forward's mom is getting old and frail and she has not yet accepted Jesus and so he's asking for prayers for his mother. And then Steve, who had heart surgery um, just a, uh, two, weeks. two weeks ago, I emailed him to find out how he was, and it says um, uh, he responded, and this is something, I'm going to read it because it's something that we all can remember if we have surgery. Every day is better and better. Monday I had a little hiccup. It appears I had some sort of stroke or some clot event. Of course, I didn't go to the ER until yesterday because I was sick of hospitals, but when I explained what had occurred, they were adamant that I had to go to the ER, so I did. A CT scan showed some damage that would correlate with my double vision, dizziness, and dilated pupil, but no side effects, and it only lasted 15 minutes. I had a brief massage that afternoon on my neck, and apparently this is a no-no that no one told me about where they had a run line directly into my artery. Anyway, all is good. He says, I'll get an MRI so that they get a better look, but after this type of surgery, you are not supposed to get massages or chiropractor treatments because of lingering clots. What fun. So he's fine, but it's something when I saw that, I thought we ought to let people know that they didn't tell him that, but no. you're not supposed to get any type of you know massage or chiropractor or anything because it can cause something to dislodge in your body and so uh, we're glad he's okay but keep them in prayer I also emailed uh, Beth to find out how Jack is and I have not heard back yet so um, uh, just keep those folks in prayer there and um, let's see here what else do we have oh, oh you know what I got a shirt on here Soylent Green 100% organic 
And uh, my friend sent that to me because obviously things are getting in the world right now. I don't know if you've read any of the articles, but they're actually talking about cannibalism uh, as an option. Soylent Green, did you see the movie? You didn't. Okay, you want to watch Charlton Heston, Soylent Green, and you'll get the, uh, the comedy of it. Anyway, it's a great movie from the 70s. And um, at the very end of it, um, I, I don't want to give away the ending because it's, there you go. But great, great movie. Um, it, uh, we, it talked about what might happen in the future, and now they're actually talking about it as if it's real. Um, okay, a couple of things before we actually get into this. Um, let's see here. Today is what? It's the 11th. Is that right? Okay, the 11th. We'll read this. Um, the Hymn Rock of Ages was written by someone who knew he would soon die. Augustus Toplady was born in Farnham in Surrey, England in 1740. The only child of a major in the English army who was killed in battle before ever seeing his son. His mother sent him to Westminster School in London where uh, hymn writer Charles Wesley and William Cowper had attended. After he and his mother moved to, <coughs> excuse me, moved to Ireland, 16-year-old Augustus went to a, hear a Methodist layman preach to a small group assembled in a barn. The text was Ephesians 2.13, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. That night, Augustus, excuse me, Augustus himself was brought nigh to God by putting his faith in Christ and the blood he shed yeah. for him. Tuplity later reminisced about that night. Strange that I, who had so long sat under the means of grace in England, should be brought nigh to God in an obscure part of Ireland, amidst a handful of God's people met together in a barn and under the ministry of one who could hardly spell his name. Surely it was God's doing and it is marvelous. The excellency of such power must be of God and cannot be of men. The regenerating spirit breathes not only on whom, but like and when, where, and as he listeth. Tupliddy graduated from Trinity College in Dublin in 1760 and two years later was ordained as a minister of the Church of England. He pastored several churches, including the French Calvinist Chapel in London. Always frail in body, he contracted tuberculosis as a young man. As he fought the ravages of the disease, he wrote Rock of Ages. It is considered the most popular hymn in the English language. And uh, it says, Rock of Ages cleft for me, let, my let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin, the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone that thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to, the, to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. When I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I rise to worlds unknown and behold thee on thy throne, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Two years later, Augustus Toplady drew his last breath and closed his eyes in death on August 11, 1778. In his final hour, he said to his friends, No mortal can live having seen the glories which God has manifested to my soul. He was just 38 years old. 
Reflection. The strength of the hymn, Rock of Ages, lies in its simplicity in setting forth the message that salvation is by grace alone on the merits of Christ's sacrifice and on the cross and not by anything that we do. Even a child can understand the familiar yet powerful words. Let your meditation today be the words of Augustus Tuplity's great hymn, Rock of Ages. Either sing it or read it as your heart's prayer to God. Isaiah 26, 3 and 4, you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, whose thoughts are fixed on you. Trust in the Lord always, for the Lord God is the eternal rock. Okay, um, one more thing. Actually, two more things. Somebody sent me Leap of Faith by Steve Martin. Real miracles sensibly priced and your salvation for a small donation. I don't know who sent that, so if somebody's watching and they sent that to me, please let me know. Um, I've never seen it, so I'll check it out. But um, if it's Steve Martin, I imagine it's pretty good. It says at the bottom, what does it say down here? Low-level course language. Low-level course language, which sounds like Steve Martin. It's usually not anything perverse, but it's low-level and coarse. Swindler. Okay. Yeah, Swindler, the comedy. Swindler. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be a good well one. Christians. Oh, that's all right. That's, I don't mind. But uh, we don't do that kind of thing in this church. We don't roll around on the floor and promise people being that's healed. True. If the Lord uh, if the Lord heals, he heals. And if he doesn't, then he has a reason for our sickness. And we understand that. But we do pray for healing. Um, uh, yeah, right. we'll pray and then uh, we'll get into one more thing. Heavenly Father, uh, you have heard the prayer requests. You know what they are and we would lift them up to you. And anybody else that's struggling in any way, shape, or form, or that, uh, uh, yeah, financial troubles or physical troubles or even emotional troubles or uh, whatever it is, Lord, we would certainly lift those up to you. And Lord, we have a nation which is in decline and which is uh, uh, very quickly turning into the East German Stasi. And uh, we would pray for our President Trump that you would be with him and give him wisdom in what's going on and that you would uh, not allow the forces of wickedness to uh, uh, hem him in in any way, shape, or form, but to uh, give him wisdom in this and uh, to prevail over these wicked, wicked people and what they're doing right now. Lord, we thank you for the chance to have this class. We ask that you bless it, and we certainly ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, before we get into Colossians, I was sent um, Suzanne, great, great lady. All of the uh, things in the back, the... Uh, commentaries that mm -hmm. are up there. Right. Uh, that's from her. Wow. Um, she sent us uh, several copies of The Pure Word, okay? And um, it says, an unprecedented biblical discovery and um, uh, the world's first and only hermeneutics-based monadic Greek to English translation. Um, I, I wanted to uh, endeavor to give it a shot and uh, then give my comments on it. It is a very hard read. If you uh, want to read this particular uh, uh, Bible, it's the New Testament only, um, it, it's, a, it's a hard read because he says, what I've done is I've taken this and I've made it a monadic translation. In other words, if uh, the word agape is used, then it will be consistently translated that way all the way through the Bible. And um, so anyway, one of, the, one of the things, I only made a couple comments on the preface, but I want to read them to you. Um, the preface uh, shows that uh, it's kind of got a set agenda. And um, it says it would, uh, he, he talks about doing what is necessary to come up with this translation. Uh, he said it would require a lifetime to complete. Okay, so keep that in mind and then we'll go on. 
uh, the process started with the original, inerrant, and infallible Greek scriptures, as determined by the King James scholars in 1611. That's a red flag right there. If that's true, then uh, we've got a real serious problem with other areas of scholarship. But he uh, says that the the King James scholars uh, used inerrant and infallible scriptures. Well, if they did, then their translation is even worse than uh, we could possibly imagine. I'm talking about the 1611 King James Version because it's so riddled with errors and inconsistencies that uh, it's amazing. But for him to say this would then lead one to wonder why would we need this Bible at all, okay? But um, he goes on, he says, um, uh, as a result, each word has a specific meaning, single specific meaning, each word. And so he's, monadic means one. So he has, this word has this meaning and this is how it's going to be translated, okay? It is not open to personal interpretation, monadic translation that presents an unambiguous and clear meaning of the original. The very fact that he's picking one possible meaning of a word means that he is using his personal interpretation. Okay, going on. Um, skip all that. He says the single meaning of each word had to fit precisely into each and every instance in what which that word was used. Now keep that in mind, okay? The single meaning of each word had to fit precisely into each and every instance in which that word was used. And he said that step took over 20 years. So it's not a lifetime, is it? Because he said it would take a lifetime to do this. Then he talks about something else and he said the entire process took over 22 years. So it's not a lifetime, so he's not really thinking too well on his comments. It he goes seems back, like a lifetime. It seems like a lifetime. Um, he um, uh, gave, an ex gave an example of pistuo. He said back then it meant um, to commit to or dedicate your life to or even give your life for, okay, which is um, uh, believe uh, in, um, what is it, um, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that uh, his only begotten son, uh, whoever believes in his only begotten son would not perish, believes in his only begotten son would not perish but have everlasting life, whatever. Okay, uh, I'm thinking ahead on what he's saying, but so the word believe means commit to or dedicate your life to. He said back in the 16th century, that is what that word meant, okay? But now he's saying that he's going back to the Greek to find out what the word means. So who cares what the 16th century is? You see, there's a problem in thinking there. Secondly, we've got scholars today that are going back to the original Greek, not the King James Version, and they're translating it as what? Belief. Okay, so he's obviously got presuppositions that he's putting into this translation. I'm telling you these things in case somebody says, I want you to have this Bible, you'll be aware of this in advance. He goes on. Nouns, pronouns, and verbs, which pertain to God's attributes and characteristics, or God's works, works of the Holy Spirit in us, or works of angels, as opposed to works of man, have been capitalized to further clarify the original Greek meaning to the reader, using Matthew 10.39 as an example. He says, I'm going to read you the verse, and I'll tell you what he did. He that found his soul shall lose it and he that loses his living soul for the cause of me shall find it. Well, it's the exact same word in the Greek. So he has subjectively said, this is soul and this is living soul. It is, he's decided that, and plus that means it's not a monadic translation because he's taken two meanings for the exact same word, okay? So it's not monadic at all. 
Next one. Um, he talks about uh, the loss of meaning in English translations that we find is often the root of misunderstood doctrines. Well, I'll d agree with that, but he says creating divisions amongst Christians. That is not what's creating divisions amongst Christians because you can have one translation where 15 people will disagree over it. So that's not the issue. People disagree because people have presuppositions, they have biases, they're unskilled, etc. There's a million reasons why they disagree. It's not what he's saying. He goes on and he says, every word of the original Greek has been retranslated into English through this monadic single process. Okay, without inconsistency is what he says at the end of that paragraph. It's not all together, but there's no inconsistency. Okay, then he says something that's astonishing. This is a preface about our Bible. He's writing his commentary about his Bible. The pure word is recognized as the most accurate Greek to English translation of the New Testament in the world. Who says? That's my comment right there. By who? He's commenting on his own translation, saying it's the most recognized one. I guarantee you that 99.999% of all people on this planet, Christians, have never heard of this. Yeah. So, I'm okay, then we'll go down here. And then, as I said, right here, why does he refer to the meaning at the time of the King James Version if his is the most accurate? Now, what I did is I took just a couple of things and um, pistuo. Uh, here's the meaning, pistuo, from 4102, pistis, faith, derived from 3982, uh, peto, persuade, be persuaded, believe, affirm, have confidence, used of persuading oneself, human believing, with the sacred significance of being persuaded by the Lord, faith believing. Only the context, this is the comments from Helps Word Studies, only the context indicates whether pistuo, believe, is self-serving, without sacred meaning, or the believing that leads to or proceeds from God's inbirthing of faith. Okay, well, he decided in that one thing about the soul, that one, one instance of soul is small and one instance of soul, and it's not the same word, I'm just giving an example, is to be capitalized. Okay, well, if the context determines that, then that means that it is subjective from his viewpoint, because he's the one that's now deciding the context. There obviously is a context, but people will disagree on what the context is. Hence, if you have two scholars that are fully versed in Greek and they evaluate a verse, they may come to completely different or even contradictory conclusions. Absolutely. And so because of that, uh, there is, as I said, presuppositions. There are biases, etc. Okay, the NAS, this is their evaluation of that word, to believe to entrust. Now, these are scholars that know the Greek and are giving their evaluation of it. There's nothing about commit to there or in the previous one. Uh, then they go on with this evaluation from Thayer's lexicon. Intransitive, when the verb is intransitive, to think to be true, to be persuaded of, to credit, place confidence in. Universally, the thing believed evident, being evident from the preceding context. And then B, specifically in a moral and religious reference, uh, it, it is used in the New Testament of the conviction and trust to which a man is impelled by a certain inner and higher prerogative and law of his soul. Thus it stands absolutely to trust in Jesus or in God as able to aid either in obtaining or in doing something. And then transitively, first was intransitive, this is transitively, to trust a thing to one. For example, to his fidelity. Luke 16, 11, 
they cite that and they say to be entrusted with a thing. Okay, now we're gonna go down to, uh, I think this is Strong's, yes. Believe, put in trust with, from pistis to have faith in upon or with respect to a person or thing. Credit by implication to entrust, especially one's spiritual well-being to Christ. Believe, and then finally we get out of all of this evaluation to the word commit. And then they qualify by saying to trust, put trust in. Okay, so he picked one out of all of these meanings, and he says, this is what this means. It means to commit to in the King James Version. Okay, do you see why reading a preface is actually important? Yeah. I've said this many times. When you get a new Bible, read the preface. Why are they doing this translation? Okay, it's very important to follow that. One example I took out of the Bible. Examples of Matthew 5, 43. Okay, 5.43 says, this is the word agapio, okay, to love. It's the higher love that people love to speak about. Uh, Matthew 5.43. I want to take you to these and I want to show you what he has done. Because he says this is a monadic translation. All right, and I just have a word that I knew he would not be monadic with. I knew he wouldn't. But I thought, I'm going to just see anyway. Uh, 5.43 and it says in the New King James Version 543, um, you have heard that it was your was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay? And then in his, he says, Matthew 543. Hang on. Um, Matthew 543. I know this is taking a little while. I apologize. Matthew 543. He says, um, you have heard that it is spirit spoken to be loving your neighbor and to be hating your enemy. And he capitalized loving, okay? So loving there, he uses that. Now I'm gonna cut to the chase and I'm gonna go through all the rest of these and I'm gonna go, I, I gave about eight examples, but in John 3.19, okay? It says in the New King James Version, all right, hang on. John 3, oops, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Hang on, a little further, John 3, and then verse 19. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved, agape, darkness rather than light. And he says in John 3, 19 here, Jesus answered and spoke to them, you must, rem oh, uh, John 3, 19 is on this page. And this is final judgment for the light has now come into the Satan's world and men loved by their choice the darkness more than the light because their man works were evil. Okay, so he's, the point is that he made it a small L. He's saying subjectively, I say that this means love, not God's love. But the word is apparently God's love in John, what was it, uh, Matthew 5.43. So if you go through these type of things and you come to somebody that makes a claim about a translation, okay, and I'm not even talking about the translators themselves, but if you hear somebody say that the King James Version is the only valid translation, it is the best translation in the world, has no errors and all that, you need to check that out. You need to be aware of those type of things. And this guy, the same thing. Now I could give you all of the examples and you'll see where there's inconsistency in his translation. But uh, for somebody to make a claim and say that this is a monadic translation and then to change the word 
from capital to small or whatever, that is subjective. Now, it may be a proper subjective interpretation or it may not be, but it is subjective. And he's saying that monadic means that it's always going to be translated the same. And as I went through it, it's not the case with all of his words. So uh, that's my evaluation of this. Um, I have another Bible that I've never read before, actually two Bibles I've never read before. I'm reading one in the morning and one at night. It's going to be a long time before I finish both of them, but when I do, I'll give you an evaluation of them. I kind of gave a little hint of one of them already in on Sunday, the Hallelujah Scriptures. Okay, they, I, I immediately, when I get something, especially when it looks like it's going to be Hebrew roots, I immediately go to Jeremiah and I go to Hebrews and I want to see how did they translate the New Covenant, how do they translate this and that, and of course, they translate it as renewed covenant, not new covenant. Renewed means something is renewed. It's not new, okay? And that is not what the translations, what the original says in either the Hebrew, the Hebrew or Greek. Uh, I don't remember the word right offhand, but it's you can check if you want, but it certainly means new. The context itself, and as somebody pointed out to me just yesterday in an email, is if you just go down one verse, it says, this covenant will not be like the older covenant. That's a paraphrase, but that's not the exact words. But if it's renewed and it's not like it, then obviously it's not renewed. Be careful when you are evaluating scripture. It's a very important thing to do. I thank Suzanne for this because uh, despite my dislike of this guy's translation, it's a valid thing to read and to know what people are thinking and to try to understand why they think it. I would caution people that are not well trained in scripture to not go to a Bible like this and say, if this is the pure word, I'm going to start using this. Or the hallelujah scriptures where they claim that, don't do that. You go. Uh, oh, Brit Hadash. Brit Hadash. Yeah, no, absolutely no. That's right. No other way than new covenant. There's no other way. And this is a Hebrew speaking person. And I know that as well. I wasn't thinking, but obviously, so it's a new covenant. There's no way of getting around that. And so the hallelujah scriptures have done exactly what the Jehovah's Witnesses did with Colossians that we talked about a week ago. They added in the word other. These people have manipulated scripture in order to falsely present their scripture as a justification for Hebrew roots. So you must be careful of these type of things. Uh, that will be in the back with the Bibles if anybody wants to read it. Um, I think I just thanked Suzanne, but if I didn't, I, I think I did, but I thank her for sending that and allowing me to go through it because I love to see things like that. But again, please be careful when you are reading um, uh, these uh, particular Bibles that claim they are something that they are obviously not. I hope I was in the uh, the thing. Okay, I, this gets down low. You were a little low, but... <laughs> yeah, okay. If you see that, let me know because this thing will sometimes just go down. Or I think he plays with it too, which is not good because... Um, anyway, um, let's see here. Uh, okay, we are now in the book of Colossians. And... Uh, uh, oh, wait. Before we go into... I asked a question last week. I asked... Uh, a question, and I can't believe I did this. You know, I will often say Peter when I mean Paul. You'll hear me do that all the time, and you guys have to correct me. I'm just thinking when I'm talking, and unfortunately, my words don't always match what I'm saying. So last week, I asked about the word soteriology, and I said that means the doctrine of sin. That's not the doctrine of sin. Hamartiology is the doctrine of sin. Soter soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. 
Okay, so I want to read you uh, the main 10 doctrines of the Bible. We talked about, I, I couldn't remember them. I was frustrated and I said something I shouldn't have and I wanted to correct that now. But here are a couple. These are not all the doctrines of the Bible, but here are 10 that you can keep in mind. You don't need to write it down because if you email me, I will send you these. But if you want to write them down, it'll save me doing an email. Okay, bibliology. What is that? Study the Bible. Study the doctrines of the Bible. Okay, theology proper including Trinitarianism, which is really important. I'm dealing with somebody right now that is not understanding the, the magnitude of Trinitarianism, the importance of holding to that doctrine. Okay, and I think we're getting some, some uh, progress right now, but you know, it's one of those things that's frustrating to me because I, people will email me and they'll ask a question. I don't initiate these things. I very rarely, if you know me, I very rarely send out an email without being prompted or unless it's a daily thing I send out. But when somebody emails me and I give a response, I have nothing to gain by it. I'm just giving them the doctrine that I know is proper. And then to find error in their thinking that I, I want that corrected. I do, because it's important. But theology proper, including Trinitarianism, is the being, attributes, and works of God. Okay? Then we have Christology. Anybody? Christ. Christ. Pneumatology. Numbers in the Bible? No. Pneuma. P-N-E-U-M-A. Pneuma. Pneuma. Spirit, like pneumatic. Your breath. Okay? Yeah. You have pneumonia. Breath. The spirit. Pneumology. Next one is angeology. Anybody? Nephilim. Uh, yeah, Nephilim. Angeology. Very good. Okay, then the next one is anthropology. The doctrine of man. Okay, anthropos. All right, then we have the one I blew last week. Actually, the one that I answered incorrectly, but it's not the one I blew. Hamartiology. Sin. Okay, and then soteriology is the one that I said is the doctrine of sin. It is salvation. Okay, and then we have one that I think somebody will get this, ecclesiology. Ecclesiology. Church? Yes, oh. the doctrine of the church, like Ecclesiastes, the teacher, okay? Very good, Rhoda got that. And the la do you have your notes in front of you? No, oh, good for you, good for you. And the last one is, you all should get this one, eschatology. Eschatology. No. Not start. Uh, almost. History. Last things. The doctrine last of last things. things. Death, last judgment, things. final destiny, rapture, end times, anything. Eschaton is the word. It's the study of last things. So if you've written that down, great. You've saved me an email. If you haven't, those are the 10 main doctrines that I would put forth in the Bible. There are lots and lots of doctrines, and there are sub doctrines off of those. But uh, those, if you're going to be asking somebody, uh, we want to evaluate you for ordination. I would want to know their idea on those 10 core doctrines, okay? That's an important thing to follow through with. But uh, I, very good on the ecclesiology. That was, that was outstanding. You get an A++++ today. Okay, so we're going to now, I apologize for the long opening, but I thought those were important things that needed to be said, especially correcting my error from last week. I actually emailed Maya, who does the Bible Bites, and I said, please don't use that section. I don't want a Bible Bite telling somebody something wrong. So there you go with that. But um, and if I had the skill, I would just go delete that part out of the uh, uh, live video, but you'd have to do that for me. I don't know how to do it, but I hate having something incorrect on a video. Just It's maddening. No, I think that's very easy. Well, if you think of it when you're over next time or 
you know, can come over and do it tonight if you want. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Anyway, um, uh, there you go. So now we are. You're gone by six. Yeah, <laughs> just be gone. I got to go to bed by six o'clock. That's true. Um, Colossians, we are in chapter one and we are in verse 19 today. Yeah, backing up to 15. 15 is good. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is, also, and he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. For that in everything he might have supremacy. Mm. 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Okay, now this one inserts words, uh, but they italicize them in the New King James Version. Or some will bracket it, some will put it in bold, whatever. You always read your preface and you'll know what is going on in the mechanics of the translation if they are willing to tell you those things. Uh, in this case, it says, For it pleased the Father that, those are inserted, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Um, uh, that is not a bad concept there. I'm sure I'm going to talk about it, but just so you know, those words are inserted. It actually just says, for it pleased in him all the fullness should dwell. Okay. Obviously, you have to insert something mentally. Okay. They decided to do it for you. It could, you know, whatever they decided, but uh, it pleased the Father is a good sound concept. I'll also, say that right now. It spells out Trinity. Well, because, absolutely. Because God, and then they go, well, you mentioned God, and then Jesus as a something he was pleased in. So right. There's, there's a separation. There, there is a separation in there. Mind the way it reads. Yeah. If you read it. Yeah. Not but you know, not non-trinitarians are going to debate these things. Okay. Sure. But there is always a uh, something I sent on this morning was a, a logical. Uh, I I try to when somebody's not understanding something, I will put it in a syllogism. This this therefore this. Mm -hmm. And if they can see that, and if they can grasp where the error in their thinking is, that is a great help. Because sometimes you just have, the, the more complicated you make your studies, the more complicated your theology is going to be presented. Right. And, I'm, I, I'm, and I'm not saying it's correct, I'm just simply saying if you're making your studies on all kinds of irrelevant things, your answers are going to have a lot of irrelevant information in them. Okay, it's important when you're uh, looking at things to keep them as simple as possible. Now, obviously, the Trinity is not a simple thing. No. Uh, I, I've been talking about it, or um, the sermon where I talked about it is what Maya has been doing the Bible Bites on recently. Right. And I've been going back over that, and I've just been so enjoying it because there's so much information. You cannot remember all this, and it's good to be reminded of it. So I've really been enjoying those uh, Trinity uh, particular Bible Bites. But, What's uh, interesting, though, if I just finish this, that, that, that all the sentences leading up to this clearly point out that he is God. God, 100%. So, so it's like it, it's almost redundant that they would feel to bracket that and say the Father. Right. So it's just, you know, it's interesting well, how, how Well, they, the reason why is because uh, here's one, and this is the particular issue that I'm dealing with with one, per, one individual is something known as Sabellianism, okay? Uh, and there, there are different aspects of modalism, okay? Um, modalism means that God is working in modes rather than there being a trinity. He, it is one God, 
and he is expressing himself in various ways, okay? And so, hence, Jesus would be the Father, the Holy Spirit would be the Father. They're, they're a monad, okay? And basically what that is, is a, 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 a twisting of Islam, because Islam says that God is one. He is a monad, okay? If God is one, and this is something that you can easily defend against, if God is one in the sense of Sabellianism, um, then you have a, a, an immediate problem is that God would have no reason at all For to create. That's yeah. right. No reason. He would be totally contained within himself. There would be no extension of himself beyond himself, and there would be no creation. I'm glad you thought of that because that is exactly correct. If you believe in a uh, monad God in one form or another, this is, it is a heresy, but it's, it's a very serious thing to consider, is that God would not extend beyond himself. But because there is love within the Godhead, because there is fellowship within the Godhead, there is the desire to share that which would not exist in a monad. There would be no creation, okay? And that is self-evident. We're, we're social creatures. That's right. And we're we could not get that from any... Uh, God cannot create anything that he does not possess himself. Right. And so by saying that we're social creatures or by saying that we are loving, then we must have a God that can express those things. A monad could not. Monad and modalism could not explain that in any way, shape, or form. There is a form of... Uh, modalism, which is called Petri-Passionism. And that's where God came and he died on the cross. Well, that's obviously wrong because God cannot die. Okay. Uh, Petri is father. Passionism, he was passionate. Okay. First off, there is no passion in God. There is no change in God. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't get happy. He doesn't get any of those things because those things occur in time. And so there must be an expression within the Godhead which allows those things to occur between them in a sense that we can't quite express, but it is impossible that God, the Father, could come in. And that's that would be uh, petropassionism. But these different heresies that come up, if you think carefully, and it, it, it's not easy, I'm, I'll tell you that. Once you have it in your head that uh, this is a problem, it's very hard to get out of that because that's what you were told, okay? Or that's what you thought that you uh, was correct and it was not. And so you need to be willing to accept simple syllogistic uh, arguments why this is incorrect. And you can come up with a lot of them. Why but, would a monad say, let's make man yeah, he our wouldn't. image? Well, you know, they, they will uh, explain that away as well. I understand. But uh, <laughs> it, it, they will say, well, that's the, the father expressing himself in the word. He is now the word. That's, a, that's modalism. He's working in uh, these modes, okay? Mm -hmm. And so they try to, yeah, it's stretching it. That's exactly what it is. But, you know, once you're taught that, it's very hard to get beyond that type of thinking. And that's why I say studying heresies, and maybe one of these days I had to just read you, I, I could read you off 25 different heresies, and they all are very, very, very minor changes in how God is presented. Some of them are so minor that you think, how could that make a difference? Um, it does. Believe me. 
when you do that, and I'm sure you will, you have to sit next to that board and you have to have written in large bold oh, print. Oh, this so is the people can see that. Heresies. Ep- I yeah. am not telling you something that right. Is oh yeah, because so, you know yeah, that's yeah. one thing I worry about. You say that before we get in, and this last thing I'm going to say before we get into Colossians, but uh, that's something I worry about is because you know I'll be watching a Bible bite and I will say something, and then I'll stop, and then I'll say, and of course that's wrong. Well, somebody could take that first thing that I've said. And they could say, see, Charlie Garrett's a heretic because he says, and that's not at all what I said. It's complete. And that's why context actually matters. But I'll watch these things and I'll say, you know, if somebody wanted to cut that out and just put it out there, you could make me say anything because I'm simply showing you what's wrong. Stop. Now this is what's right. That's kind of scary. But well, it's, it's timing. And, and, well, it you know, is, but it's timing for a sermon. But at the same time, somebody that wants to do that could really Sergio's got ideas now he's sitting here thinking I'm going to get Charlie okay we got to go on okay 119 I'm going to read it again because we kind of got away from that for it pleased the father that in him all the fullness should dwell okay here it is the construction of the words of this verse leave it open as to the identification of the subject he's still laughing about it he's really thinking about making me into Charlie uh, Charlie heretic okay the words the father as I said, are inserted here, okay? Some translations state God or even Godhead. In other words, it pleased the Godhead. In him, all the fullness should dwell. Or it pleased God. In him, all the fullness should dwell. Okay, so depending on your translation, it may say God, Godhead, Father, etc. Others leave out any insert. The Father is referred to in verse 12, where Paul acknowledges giving thanks to the Father. However, the term God is used in verse 15, where it says he is the image of the invisible God. Right. As this is the nearest antecedent, and as God is at other times referring to the Father, it appears to be a better choice to fully define what is on Paul's mind. Uh, you know, if you're really questioning something, and unless you're absolutely certain that it's not the case, the nearest antecedent is always the best place to go. When you read Daniel chapter 9, verses um, uh, 24 through 27, and you want to find out who the Antichrist is, well, it could either be, uh, I'm sorry, who he is in verse 27. It could either be the Antichrist or it could be Jesus. Now, that's a big difference. And I got to tell you what, if you believe that um, uh, you're a praetorist, you believe that everything is fulfilled, you're going to say, well, that was speaking of Jesus. That's what they're going to say. I had a person that I used to be friends with that um, uh, was a normal dispensationalist. And they went flipped out and he became a uh, praetorist. And he says, no, that's not speaking of the um, uh, uh, of the Antichrist. It's speaking of Jesus. I'll take you there so you understand because it's relevant. This is not irrelevant. It's, it is a diversion, but it's not irrelevant. We're going to go to Daniel 9. And, uh, and then I'll read again what I just said so you understand the context. Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27. And I'm not going to read all four of them. There's no point. But if I can turn the page, um, here it is. I, I'm going to read you from verse 26. And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined verse 27 then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week well who is it speaking about it says both messiah and daniel in the previous verse 
closest the to nearest statement. antecedent is the people of the prince who is to come. And so it would be illogical and it would also violate biblical interpretation to go back to the Messiah. Unless there is an absolutely valid reason to do so, the thought is taking it to the nearest antecedent. Then he is speaking not of the Messiah, but of the people of the prince who is to come. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. And that happens to fit well with Revelation. It also fits well with what Jesus says. But because people do not want to admit one thing, one thing, that the Jews have a place in God's future. They don't want to admit that. And so what do they do? They say that it is speaking of Jesus. Okay, it's the past. Jesus established a covenant for one week. What's the problem with that? Jesus did not establish a covenant for one week. He established it forever, a new covenant in his yeah. blood. Okay, and there are lots of other fallacies in that, lots of them, but I'll just give you that and then we'll go on. But you see what I'm talking about. The nearest antecedent within the text is almost always referring to the subject of whatever you're looking at. So in one this week. case, what? One week. One, one week is one period of seven years. One period of seven years. Yeah, 70 weeks are determined. It's a period of 70 sevens. 490 years, is that seven times? Yes. So anyway, um, and then so you, we've done 483 years. We Everybody agrees on that, and all of a sudden we got seven more years. What are we talking about? Are we talking about Messiah establishing the new covenant, or are we talking about something 2,000 years later referring to the Antichrist? Praetorists do not want to admit that, because then that means that the Jews are still in God's redemptive plans. And if you want to get rid of that problem right away, all you need to do is watch the Joshua 3 and Joshua 4 sermons. And you'll know because the typology was given long, long, long before. Joshua 3 last week took care of about three or four heresies immediately, maybe five, maybe five or six. Okay, Joshua 4 will get rid of a couple more heresies as well. All right, these are things that are actually not just wrong and bad doctrine. They are heretical. And Joshua 3 and 4 take care of them. Great, great stuff. Um, uh, I don't know. I really enjoyed last week's sermon and I think I should just retire after that because I was so excited. I was almost in tears when we got to the part of Israel crossing through. I just, oh, I was beside myself. Okay, um, we'll go on with the comments now. So you see what I was talking about, and so I'll read my comments again. The construction of the words of this verse leave it open as to the identification of the subject. The words the Father are inserted here. Some translations state God or even Godhead, okay? Others leave out any insert at all. The, if you leave out an insert, if there was no nothing in there, for it pleased in him all the fullness should dwell. Where are you going to go to find your answer to that? You're going to go back and you're going to read the previous verses until you come to the nearest antecedent. Okay? And so you go, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. And so God makes much more sense. That's my logic there. Okay? However, the term God is used in verse 15 where it says he is the image of the invisible God. As this is the nearest antecedent, and as God is at other times referring to Father, it appears to be a better choice to fully define what is on Paul's mind. Further, Colossians 2.9 states, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. This is specifically speaking of Christ as well. 
And so Paul was probably thinking of the Godhead or deity here in 119 as well, okay? God is a Godhead, okay? Because we don't believe in a, a uh, monad God. We believe in a trinity within, a plurality within a unity. Is that what I'm, yes, or plurality with a unity. One essence, three persons. Okay, so with this understanding, the verse can be logically evaluated. For it pleased, the words for it pleased shows that what has come about in Christ was something satisfying to God. Everything about the exaltation of Christ, which has been seen in the preceding verses, was by the design and with the approval of God. Christ Jesus' preeminence in all things was God's intent all along. From the moment of creation and actually even before, because it says um, uh, in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, if the Word was before creation, which is quite clear from the text, then we can understand that this was God's intent even before creation. When God was fellowshipping in himself, the three members of the Godhead, and like I said, this occurred outside of time. We cannot think of this as happening in some way where there's eons of God just deciding I'm going to do these things. This is God without any time. He is spirit. There's no time connected with him. So it's something we can't quite understand, but this is what occurred, okay? Even before creation, which means even before time began, this was determined and God was pleased with it. He was happy with this thought I am going to create and I am going to send a redeemer, implying that we need a redeemer. a redeemer, which means God knew all along that man would fall, that it was necessary that if I am going to create a sentient being to fellowship with, he will turn from me. It is necessary in order for that to come about because he cannot create man with the knowledge of good and evil. Man had to experience that. And because of that, he knew that he had to send Christ and he would be pleased with what he did, okay? This is all going on in the Godhead apart from time, okay? As I said before, God does not get angry. God does not get happy. He doesn't do those things actually. When we read that in the Bible, it is for our benefit. That is what is called anthropomorphism, okay? Ascribing man's traits to God the right arm of the Lord, the hand of the Lord, okay? All these things that we ascribe to God in which the word does is to help us understand the nature of God, okay? This is revealed, I'll read it again. Christ Jesus' preeminence in all things was God's intent all along. This is revealed through the words that in him, meaning in Christ, all the fullness should dwell. The pleroma or fullness refers to all, all of the divine attributes and the essential nature of the Godhead. Everything about God the Father, everything about God the Son, everything about God the Holy Spirit is seen in Christ, okay? That doesn't mean that he is God the Father. It doesn't mean that he is God the Holy Spirit, but it is seen in him. The fullness of this expression of God is revealed in Jesus Christ. Everything about God that can be revealed to us is done so through Christ Jesus. He is the focal point for us to understand God fully and completely. As I said, we will never see God, okay? We cannot see God, okay? 
God is infinite. If we were to see God, then we would be God, okay? And I'm talking not about physical seeing. I'm talking about the understanding of who God is. And that's why we need Christ Jesus to forever and ever and ever reveal the unseen God to us, okay? And that's what he does, all right? It is through him that God will ceaselessly and endlessly reveal himself to us. This is fully supported by the words of Revelation chapter 21. Take you there, the final thought there before we get into 22. It says in verses um, 22 and 23, but I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. The Lamb is the one that is revealing God to us. He is the light of God. He is everything about what we need to know about God will be revealed ceaselessly and endlessly in Jesus Christ. It's already happening in some extent through the word, but someday we're going to have something that we cannot even imagine right now. And it is going to go on. You know, once again, I've got an arm that is not working properly. And you're in pain and you're like, what's going on? You know, I'm getting old. That's what's happening. But despite that, I keep thinking to myself, I do this all the time. I don't know how we can live forever. I'm so tired. I'm 50. How old am I? I'll be 58 one of these days. I'm 57. I'll be 58 one of these days. Okay. And I think I'm just beat. You know, I go to bed every night and I'm just done. How can we go on forever and ever? It's, we're going to be in a state that we can't even imagine right now. So if you're thinking about your pains and your, yeah, I tell you this morning I called Thor. I had a, an hour and a half free and I said, Thor, would you come over? I want to take down a big tree at the house and it's going to be dangerous. So I need another person to have a rope and pull it so that, you know, it goes in the right place and everything. And when he said, well, I'm at the gun range right now, I said, oh, good. I actually, I, you know, I got to use my time, but I was so happy because I thought that's going to be a lot of work. It's way above the ladder too. So it's going to make it even more complicated because the ladder only goes up, I think, 22 feet. Yeah. And so uh, it, it's going to be a bit of a challenge, but I was actually happy when he said that because I thought I, I may not make it to Bible class tonight. Thor's going to have to call somebody and say, well, Charlie died, you know, but we'll get it next week. Okay. Anyway. You, um, you know, people will do that for a living. Well, I know that's not going to happen. As long as I have a chainsaw, I'm doing it, okay? Don't even suggest that, okay? Um, I'm the guy who fell out of the Yeah, I know. You're the guy that fell out of the tree. I will hope that doesn't happen, but if it does, Thor will be there to tell people I didn't make it. Okay, um, so we got Revelation 21 explaining that. What God reveals of himself is done through the Lamb. Thus, God's light of revelation is fully expressed to us through Christ Jesus. This was what Jesus was telling the apostles in John 14, verse 9. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Okay? That doesn't mean that they're one. Monad, it means that they are one in the same. They are three persons in one essence. If you have seen the Father, you have seen me because he is the one expressing the Father to us. Okay? Uh, he who has seen me has seen the Father. The fullness of the Godhead is seen and expressed to us through Jesus Christ because it dwells in him. The word Paul uses for dwell is one which indicates setting down as a permanent 
resident. I should say settling down as a permanent resident. Jesus didn't temporarily receive the fullness of the Godhead, but he possesses it completely and eternally. He is God's permanent focal point for revealing himself to us, Jesus Christ. When we see Jesus, we are seeing everything that we need forever and ever and ever to appreciate who God is. He is that focal point for us to see and to know God. Life application. God has chosen to reveal himself in his fullness through Jesus Christ. To deny the deity of Christ is to deny the truth of God. As we said, I think it was last week or uh, maybe it was during the Bible Bite that I watched yesterday. Uh, the the uh, meaning of the meaning of Antichrist is a denial of the Son, and that means the deity of the Son. When we think of Antichrist, we think of a guy sitting up in a temple and he's going, <laughs> I'm controlling all these people and I'm doing this. Yeah, that may be true. He may be doing that. But the definition of what the Antichrist is, is a denial that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. That's said explicitly by John. In other words, it's denying that Jesus Christ is God. Okay, And so that is going to be his main thing. When he comes as the Antichrist, he's going to say, he isn't God. And that's how you're going to be able to identify him as the Antichrist. And it's probably, I don't know, maybe it's, he's going to explain away the rapture. Jesus didn't do this because he's not God. And so what you think you saw didn't happen. Okay, there's going to be something like that that comes out that tells us the Antichrist, who he is, but it's after we're gone. We're not going to know who the Antichrist is. That's explicit in 2 Thessalonians 2. Anyway, one either has the Son, which includes the fullness of God, or they do not have God. John says that explicitly. It is that, pl it is that plain and simple. If you don't have the Son, you don't have God. You don't have the Son. You don't have the Father. You don't have the Son. You don't have the Holy Spirit. They are not interested in you because you are not interested in the Son. So when people say, oh, I love God, and they don't love Jesus Christ because he is God, they do not have God. Okay? Fundamental error of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus Christ is not God. God did not come in the flesh. That is Antichrist. Okay? Little Antichrist walking all over the place in Sarasota, Florida. Okay, they go to their church and they teach each other the things that they teach, but that is what the Bible says. Mormons, they believe that Jesus was a man who became a God, okay, and they're going to be a God themselves. They're denying the fundamental precept that Jesus Christ is God. There is one God, and he is the one that is revealing him to us, okay? So, don't resist God any longer, but rather yield yourself to the Son and, in turn, be pleasing to the Father. I don't care who it is on this planet that says they love God. I don't care what religion they are in. If they're in Islam, if they're in Confucianism, if they're in uh, Shinto Buddhism, okay? I had a neighbor in Japan, and you'd hear her every morning, num, 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 speaking in tongues, and she's out there doing her, her thing in Shinto Buddhism, all right? She probably thought she is in close with God, and she was as far away from God as a Satanist. That's all there is to it. If you don't have the Son, you don't have God in any way, shape, or form. Jesus Christ is God, and you cannot have God without Jesus Christ. Okay? So, there you go. Um, 120. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace 
through his blood oh. shed on the cross. Oh, wonderful words. And by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Okay, think of the uh, sermon last weekend. I, and I think I say it again in this sermon, or maybe I, anyway, um, uh, the word uh, uh, avar in Hebrew, it can mean to pass over, it can mean to pass through, etc. Okay, the better uh, definition to understand the New Testament would be to pass through. Okay, you're passing through Christ. You're not going over Christ, you're going through Christ. And that's kind of seen in these words right here. Okay, now the word di or dia, uh, you know, what is this? This is a circle, and then you have a line going straight across. What is that? It's yeah. called the diameter. diameter. Okay, so dia simply means through. Okay, that's the normal translation. It can be, and the context determines what it should be, but it can be other things, you know, whatever, by or, you know, however they want to translate something. Um, but normally when you see the word dia, you want to translate it as through. Okay, at least mentally, even if it's not that way in the Bible, you're understanding that it is through something. Okay, um, and once again, that takes us back to this right here, the pure word. Not every word has the same meaning in different contexts. I was uh, emailed uh, somebody this morning about the word with. Okay, and the word with can mean a lot of different things in the English. My example was, he, struggle, he strives with God, the name Yisrael. Right? He strives with God. Well, what does that mean? It's actually a double entendre. He strives with God for God. Israel's out doing the Lord's work, taking over the enemies of the world, right? They're de defeating the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites. They're striving with God for God. But 99% of the time, Israel does what? They strive with God against God. They're striving with God. So the same word has exactly the opposite meaning in the context determines what it is. So it doesn't matter if if uh, Israel has 99.927% striving against God. It doesn't matter if he, the 0.02% or whatever I said, that little remainder part, if it's, if it, the context demands that he is striving with God for God, then that's what you must imply in the translation. Okay, it's important to not just say I have a monadic translation and this identifies all the problems with the Bible. It does not. It just ignores the context. So um, the same thing is here. Through, having made peace through the blood of his cross. For context, the previous verse needs to be cited with this one, so I will. For it pleased, I'm gonna just skip the words. For it pleased that in him, uh, did you bring my lunch? Oh, you got it. Okay, thank you. Um, for uh, here it is, and it for it pleased in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Okay, that's the full context of what needs to be said. Do you need anything? The truck is parked. Like, there's no parking. Way down the road. Okay, thank you. I love you, son. Where's my, are you bringing my food? Oh, it's in the truck. Okay, thank you. Love you. Okay. I, I knew he was waiting for something, but I wanted to get that out. Okay, and now I've thought, I've forgotten what I was gonna say. Um, okay, he borrowed my truck today. It's a good boy. Um, I told him there's no radio though. 
today or yesterday, I was driving down the road. I was telling Sergio and Rhoda this. I was following a big semi truck down Midnight Pass, and I like to get really close because you get free gas mileage because it, the wind is blowing around you, and you're like in that pocket where it pulls you along. And of course, he hits a tree, a branch the size of Montana fell down and just smashed the whole top of my car and took off the uh, the uh, oh. the antenna. Oh, it made a big twang sound, boing, and it was gone. It was off in the woods somewhere. But, yeah, so I told him, son, you got no radio. And he's like, ooh. There you go. It happens. Okay, so uh, that happened when I was going around the U.S. in 2010, preaching at all the capitals. I was on the longest straight in the country, probably. Maybe Utah is longer. It's straight is in um, Oregon, the Oregon Trail. It's straight as far as you can see, and it smells just like Christmas. The juniper trees out in the desert. It's just a desert. It's beautiful. A whole covey of quails flew right in front of me, and I took out about 10 of them, and one of them took out my antenna, and I had no radio all the rest of the way around the U.S. I went to a place to get it fixed, and they said, the manual says it takes eight hours to replace the cable to have this, and I'm like, I ain't doing that. So I sang to myself for the next hundred days. Anyway, um, yeah. Okay, so we've got that. The words, and by him, are thus speaking of Christ Jesus, while the words, to himself, are speaking of God, of the previous verse, remembering that the words, the Father, were inserted, but are speaking of God as the Father. This means by which God, uh, the means by which God is reconciling all things to himself is through Christ Jesus. Here is God. There's a problem between us and him. God is infinitely holy. He is absolutely perfect in his being. Can anybody disagree with that? He is absolutely perfect in his being. In him, there is no unrighteousness. There is no untruthfulness. He is perfectly truthful. He is perfectly righteous. He is just in all ways. Man is now fallen. How is that going to be reconciled? Because God cannot fellowship with imperfection. He cannot do it. And so what does he do? He puts, brings Christ into the world to reconcile all things to himself. Everything is reconciled through Jesus Christ. I've done the uh, chart here before where you've seen I put up on one side of a circle, you've got his holiness and his righteousness and his just nature. And over here, you've got his uh, love and his grace and his mercy. Well, how can he give you that love and grace and mercy? He can't overlook his holiness. If he does, then he's not holy. He can't overlook his justice. He's got to judge us because if he doesn't, then he's not just. Okay, th here's an example for you. Um, somebody goes and kills your mother. And you demand justice. You say, this is not right. They have a law. It says this person is to be uh, whatever, hanged or whatever. That is what you do. If you don't do that, then you are an unjust judge. God cannot do that. He must judge sin. So you've got this tension between all of these attributes of God. How is that reconciled? Through Jesus cross. Everything, everything about God and the dilemma between us and man, uh, between him and man, is reconciled only through the cross of Jesus Christ. And if people could see that one thing, they would not be in the other religions of the world. They would understand that there is a defect that must be first dealt with. And the only way it can be dealt with is through God himself entering into the stream of humanity and uniting with humanity. And so that we can have that dealt with first. And then after that, all of the grace and mercy and all of that can be poured out on us because Christ 
was our substitute. Without that, there can be no fellowship. As long as people understand that simple premise, which is not really simple, but if they can understand it and grasp it, they say, I have a problem. And that's why I was talking about last week when witnessing to somebody and they start backing up and they're scared. When you simply tell them that sin is a problem and that God cannot accept sin and they realize that and they get scared, that person already understands the disconnect. They just don't know how to fix it. And that's when you say, well, let me tell you about Jesus. This is what he did to fix that. But some people just don't get it. I'm good. I'm God. You know, I'm not as bad as Adolf Hitler. It doesn't work that way. That one single infraction of Adam has condemned the entire human race. Everybody. It's condemned the universe. The whole creation fell. Christ is the one to reconcile all of that. Okay. The words, and by him. Are, and some uh, translations here, it says here, I'm going to read it again, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth. Some translations only have by him one time, not two. It is in the Greek, but for simplicity, they drop one of them out. My friend emailed me about that this week, and I said, we'll talk about that. So I've talked about it. It is in the Greek. Okay, so uh, going on, let's see here. Um, remembering the words, I have already said that. Here the term ta panta, or all things, is brought in again. All things which are to be reconciled are done so through Christ Jesus. Paul then follows this up with the words, whether things on earth or things in heaven. The intent here is that there is a need for reconciliation between the earthly and the heavenly things. As Albert Barnes notes, the meaning is not that the things in heaven were alienated from God, but that there was alienation in the universe which affected heaven, and the object was to produce again universal concord and love. This sentiment is found elsewhere, such as in Ephesians chapter 1. Let me take you there, Ephesians chapter 1, and it says in verse 10, where is it? That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one things, in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Okay? These things need to be reconciled. Through Christ, there is the gathering together of all things. In him, the fracture is healed and peace is restored. God has done this, having made peace, Paul's words, having made peace through the blood of his cross. The words, the blood of his cross, are given to mean the blood that he shed on the cross. We talked about that last week. When you think of the blood, you think of death. The life is in the blood. He shed his blood. Christ died. The blood of his cross means his death. Okay, just think of it that way and you'll get it. The blood and, it, the, blood and the instrument, meaning the cross, which caused it to be shed, are almost tied together as one in Paul's mind. God chose the cross to be the means by which Christ's blood would be shed. Thus the cross stands as the symbol of what occurred. When we look to the cross, we look to the symbol of our faith which represents the blood that was shed. Okay, a lot of people will email me and they say, is it okay if I have a cross in my house? Paul would say, absolutely, 100%. Yes. He says that I may I boast in nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ, who 
by whom I am reconciled to God and God is whatever. I, I, I don't have it memorized, I'm sorry, but it's uh, Galatians 6, 16 or something like that. Anyway, uh, and Burke, if he's watching this right now, is going crazy because he can quote those things off the top of his head. I get thinking of other things and I can't stop and, and pull a verse out even though I know what it says. Okay, so um, uh, if you have a cross, that is there to remind you of Jesus. Okay, here's one thing that people do all the time, and I get people emailing it, and there are people that are that attend the church that are have said this to me, and I never argue with them, but I will say it, and they can be angry at me, or they can say, oh, I never thought of that. People will get so down on the crucifix. I've heard this 8,000 times in my life. Jesus came down from that cross. We should not have a cross with Jesus on it, okay? What is the empty cross? It's a moment in history. What is Christ on a cross? It's a moment in history. We have a picture right over there. What is that picture of? Actually, it's two, but it's one. It's a picture of Jesus Crucified as the shepherd, shepherd, but the one, the other aspect of him is Jesus with a crown, crown of thorns on his head. That was a moment in history. Christ doesn't have that crown of thorns on his head. People have no problem with Jesus depictions with a crown of thorn on his head. But all of a sudden, because Catholics have a crucifix, you can't have any crucifixes in your house. And I've heard that eight million times, and I disagree with it. I don't argue with people over it, but I disagree with the premise. It is a moment in history that we are remembering. Christ died on that cross. He shed his blood on that cross. And Paul is making a mental image of Christ dying on that cross right here. If somebody has a crucifix in their house, I have zero problem with it. Zero. If they have a picture of Jesus with the thorns on their head, but they won't allow a crucifix, the problem is in their head, okay? We are thinking of moments. Here's another one. When we are celebrating on Palm Sunday, what do we think of when we think of Palm Sunday and Jesus? On the donkey. On the donkey. And we have pictures of Jesus on a donkey, right? Okay. Palm trees, okay, but I'm talking Jesus, not the other things. Jesus, we have a picture of Jesus on a donkey. That was a moment in history. Is Jesus still on a donkey? No, and we don't have any problem with that. I have zero problem with people having a crucifix in their house. Christ died on that cross, and I want to remember that for the rest of my life. I never want to forget that, and if I see a cross that's empty, I say, hallelujah, he's not up there anymore. But if I see him on the cross, I say, my God, he did that for me. I have the same thought in my heart, one way or another. Okay. And the one that's ignored, which is probably the most important, is the empty tomb. The how empty you, tomb. How do you get that? The <laughs> empty tomb. One of my favorite pictures, and it's just a GIF, not even a GIF, it's just like a, a, a cartoon picture of the grave of Christ and the big wheel and the big stone in front of it, and it's about this far away from it, and there's this, like, you know, the lines that show action and the word under it, boom! That is one of my favorite pictures. Look at my hair standing up all over my body. He just, he destroyed death. And it, that picture explains it so well. Boom, there goes the, the stone, this giant stone. How are we gonna get the stone off, the ladies say? Don't worry about it, he ain't there anyway. Okay, I love that. Oh, I just, I'm just so excited with that picture. Okay, um, uh, we, where was I? Okay. God chose the cross to be the means by which Christ's blood would be shed. Thus, the cross stands as the symbol of what occurred. When we look to the cross, we look to the symbol of our faith, which represents the blood that was shed. 
It is through this instrument of death that life and reconciliation come about. It is through the cross that peace is realized. The blood of his cross, then, is a term which is linked to the thought of atonement, redemption, and propitiation, as is spoken of in Romans chapter 3. Let me take you there. If you don't know what propitiation is, all it means is to make happy, to reconcile, to bring back a propitious relationship. So in Romans chapter 3, it says in verse I'll start with uh, verse 22. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness and that that he might be the that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. One thing that must be understood from this verse is that all things must mean all things, just as it did before. Sometimes, and I've said this before, not every every in the Bible means every. Not all alls in the Bible mean all. You have to take the context of what is said, okay? Uh, one of the examples I love to give is that all Jerusalem was stirred when the Magi showed up at uh, Herod's door and said, you know, it meant all of the leaders of Jerusalem. Not every person was awake and worrying about, oh, there's a savior. They didn't know and the shepherds had to go tell them. And the word never got out for some of the people. That's why we had the apostles afterwards telling what Jesus did, okay? Um, when it says that all Jerusalem and Judea went down to be baptized, right? It says that. And then later it says that the Pharisees did not accept the baptism of John. So not every, every means every, not all, all means all. You gotta take the context. But in this verse, all things must mean all things just as it did before. Paul uses the same Greek term, tapanta, in verses 16, 17, and 18. It would not be logical to think that he suddenly means something different here than he did in those verses because they are all connected to the same overall thought concerning Christ. Understanding this, while at the same time taking in the whole counsel of Scripture, the idea of reconciling all things through Christ must include the thought of condemnation, not salvation. Because when all things are reconciled through the blood of Christ's cross, not everybody is saved, are they? That means that condemnation is a part of this reconciliation process. God is going to reconcile everything through what he did in Christ, everything. But that means that some condemnation must exist because a lot of people are not calling on Jesus Christ. They die apart from him. And so condemnation must be included in this thought. All things, and we love to bring this up, Gemini, are potentially reconciled through Christ's cross. Jesus Christ died for Charlie Garrett. Jesus Christ died for uh, Fumio Usama over in, uh, not Usama, that's a different, um, whatever, Otaki over in Japan. And then he died for uh, Wang Chung in China. And he died for all these different people all around the world. But not all of them actually come to Jesus Christ. Okay, All things are potentially reconciled through Christ's cross. Not all things are actually reconciled, though. 
at least not in the same way. What's that? What's that? Until. Until. Right. Not in the same way. Condemnation, salvation. Yep. God reconciles his faithful through salvation. God reconciles those who are at enmity with him through condemnation. God has set forth the cross of Jesus Christ as the means of reconciliation, while faith in that cross is the mode by which it comes. Faith is what makes it possible. Without faith, the potential reconciliation is not realized, and thus only condemnation is left. Okay? Somebody, I posted something on Twitter. I'm trying my best to get banned from there. I just keep saying the most obnoxious things. You know, I, if I was a good Christian guy, I'd be posting about Jesus all day long. And I don't do that on Twitter because I'm trying to make a point there. Anyway, I am always posting things, trying to get myself banned. And I posted something about the nature of God. And this guy came back and he, he was shocked at what I said. He was absolutely flabbergasted. And I thought, that guy has no understanding of what's going on in God. It says in the, the 51st Psalm, I was conceived in iniquity. In sin, my mother gave birth to me. I know that's a paraphrase or a little bit off, but that's basically what he says, Psalm 51, verse 5. Okay, and then um, uh, Paul says in Romans that in Adam, sin spread to all people. Sin, sin spread to all people. And because sin spread to all people and because God is infinitely holy and sin is in all people, that means that everybody is condemned. And if you want proof of that, you just go to John 3.18, which is the verse that I gave him. I said, I didn't say that. Jesus did. You take it however you want to take it. But Jesus said that he who does not have the son is condemned already. Already. It's done. And that guy was flabbergasted. And I thought, you know what? All I can do is tell you what Jesus said. I can't, you know, get into you and say, I'm going to click this little tumbler and make you believe that. Okay. You can believe whatever you want. This is a free world. Okay. As far as our, our thoughts but we have choices to make. Okay, life, uh, we're done, we're done, yes. For clarification, I have a question, the all things, uh, at least thoroughly, just I'm sure I understood it correctly, all things, that's the relationship between man and God, that broken bond, or, or is that people themselves? Because, you know, some people say all things includes animals, and oh, it, physical it, it, world. Paul makes clear in Romans chapter one that the entire creation was fractured at the fall. Everything, that's why animals die. Okay, it's not the way it was intended to be. Uh, other animals eat other animals. You know, one of the, it, it's kind of perverse, but it's kind of funny too, is the lefties out. Uh, and I've heard this, it may just be a, uh, what do you call it when uh, uh, people just say things and it becomes commonly accepted. Anyway, there's a, there's a term for it I'm not thinking of right now, but um, uh, these lefties apparently had this seal that was like, damaged in a oil slick or something they whatever cleaned it up. yeah they cleaned it up they got it all they kept it in a cage or whatever wherever you keep these seals they got it all back to health and then they released it and within 20 seconds of it being released a beluga whale or a killer whale or something came up and swallowed the thing and all these lefties went Ooh, you know and i imagine it was based on something true but the point is that that cute little thing that these people took all that time to care for was eaten by another animal, right? This is the world in which we live, okay? We were talking about spiders earlier today. Some spiders are good, some spiders are bad, right? They serve a purpose. They're and, good. Well, yeah, they're, they're good in the sense that God created them, but there's a bad that is connected yeah. to them 
in regard to us. Yes. Okay. But uh, before we finish, I've got a life application. But before we finish, so d did that answer your question? So all things includes everything. All things. Well, he says but it's right not reconciled yet. Then. That's right. Okay. So That's right. It, it, it is coming, and it, all things will be reconciled. What's that? Sixteen. He said that all things were created. All things in heaven, earth. Yeah, and that's why I say the context is all things. It's all things were created. All things exist. All things. Everything fell. But that doesn't mean that there's a problem in heaven. No. It has to be reconciled to heaven. Okay? Everything needs to be brought back to a state of perfection. All right? That's what that's talking about. Is um, that why then there will be the new heaven? And yeah, new heaven and new earth. Everything will be made new. Everything will be made new. Um, but the thing I was going to tell you about is that if you've never seen a spider gather up its web... They didn't know that spiders do this. They, they say, we've got this giant web out in the yard. And I want to show you because I want to know if it's a poisonous spider or not. And we walked out and there's no web. And he says, it was here last night. It was big and beautiful. I said, well, the spider gathered it up. And they said, no. <laughs> Type in, you can watch two minutes on YouTube, spider gathering in web. And there's a thousand videos and there'll be somebody that will put it into, uh, what do you call it, um, uh, where they shorten it, uh, time-lapse time photography. Lapse, yeah. And it just is taking it. This big, beautiful web he spent all night making, and he gathers it up, and then the next day he uses the same thing and puts it out again. So that's God's creation, God's wisdom in a spider, a brain that is probably smaller than... Incredible. What's it? Yeah, incredible. Anyway, go watch that. Life application. When we look to the cross, we are looking to the instrument by which God has brought us back to himself. When we boast in the cross, we are not boasting in an idol. Rather, we are boasting in the highest act of God's love for mankind. The cross stands as a symbol and a banner for the work of Jesus Christ. Let us not be confused about the meaning of the cross. Rather, let us boast in it, because in so boasting, we are exalting the work of God in Christ. What a wonderful, wonderful thing he has done for us. Okay, yeah. Heavenly Father. We do thank you for the chance to come and to get into your word and to share in it. Thank you for the uh, Bible that I was sent by Suzanne, and thank you that it does have a purpose and it does help us in some ways, but at the same time, we would pray that people would uh, be sound in their thinking about Bibles, refer to them to maybe get a, a little experience of something, but not to be sidetracked by side issues, but help us focus on the main issues that are concerned in your word and the main one of all of them is that you sent Jesus for us thank you for Jesus Christ our Lord thank you that he accomplished what needed to be done and then he gave up his precious life in exchange for our sins and thank you for the resurrection the big boom where everything was made new thank you that we have that hope because of what he has done thank you Lord God and it's in his name we pray amen amen all right, let's back this up. Here we go, here we go. Let's see, we're going to go to break.